This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Consultations for the new Canada Disability Benefit are underway. The Government of Canada wants to know your thoughts on eligibility and the benefit amount, uh, amongst other things. The consulting period is open until December the 21st of this year. You can do it online, over the phone, or by mail. For the sake of simplicity... Here's the phone number, and I'll give this out again at the end of the segment. It's 1-833-390-4065. That's 1-833-390-4065. Ultimately, the question is, what should the Canada Disability Benefit look like? I have thoughts. So does Kelly Braun Johnson. Kelly is the founder of Completely Inclusive. Hey, good morning, Kelly. Nice to chat with you this morning. Yes, I have a lot of thoughts about this as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are about a million threads to pull out here, Kelly, but let's put our minds together and see if we can build some consensus, starting with the amount. I'd argue the amount should be somewhere around $800 a month, basically enough to bring anyone on a provincial disability support anywhere in the country up to $2,000 of monthly income. I know it's probably not enough, but what do you think of that number? So aside to this, I'm also a huge pro proponent of universal basic income, and that's pretty much $2,000 a month is pretty much the amount that has been kind of bandied around. Um, and it's it's also the amount that was given during CERB during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I really think this is a basic amount that that we should probably be starting with, at least that. In terms of eligibility, this can get a little bit tricky. But what if the pure starting point was anyone who is either eligible and on the federal disability tax credit or a provincial disability support program? So I have a lot to say about the disability tax credit. Um, I think it's problematic in its application. So um, going back in time, I was actually at the House of Commons on November 30th of 2017 uh, when I was on the board with Autism Canada and we were protesting the issues with the DTC at the time. Um, we had teamed up with Diabetes Canada and MS Canada as well, because there was a huge number of people who were making applications and getting rejected. So things like diabetics being forced to prove that they still need insulin in order to survive, um, that amputees were having to prove that their limbs had not magically grown back. Um, and you know, it sounds absolutely wild and ridiculous, but this, this is what's actually happening to real people. Um, and of course, we have autistic people that are still uh, having to reprove or to prove that their autism hasn't been cured over the course of their lifetime. And then if we look at provincial um, programs, they're not all the same in terms of their criteria. And so I always joke that my son is autistic in Canada, but not in Quebec, because in Quebec, even though he has the same diagnosis, the same person, uh, he's not considered sufficiently disabled. Um, and then aside from that, we also know that at least 
it was 64% back in 2017. The, the, the numbers have probably been updated a bit, but it's around somewhere around 70% of people actually who are el eligible do not apply for the DTC just because it's too complicated. Mm. Um, it costs too much time, too much money for them. Um, and they're also scared they're going to get rejected as well. So using the DTC as, as our base is, is problematic. And we need to have changes in that, I think, first. Okay, you know what, Let, let's talk about that for a second. I think you identified them a little bit in that answer, but what are those barriers that makes that DTC eligibility process so onerous? Or maybe even putting this more broadly, Kelly, the way in which applying for any kind of disability benefit becomes too onerous. And, and we'll circle back to some of the specifics of the benefit in a second. Mm-hmm. So the basic application for the DTC is, is around 20 pages. Um, and so not everybody has to fill out all those pages, depending on what disability you have, that's fine. But there's, there's, it's a very long process and there's very little nuance when it comes to things like uh, mental health or developmental disabilities. Um, so then you have to find a doctor who is going to be willing to work with you on this. Um, so you may have to make an appointment and we know with doctor shortages that can be very difficult to get an appointment with your doctor, especially if it's a non-urgent case, you say, hey, can I have you fill out some forms? Um, they're not always very sure about what to write and what the formula to use is to, to express it properly. Um, they'll charge you for that time often. Um, you're also having to compile all your specialist forms, um, all your diagnoses, your whole medical file. Um, and that takes time and often they'll charge you as well for access to your file. Um, so there's time and the, the money barriers. But then you're sending this medical file to the CRA, to the Canada Revenue Agency, right? And they're not medical doctors who are reading this. These are tax agents. And I'm sorry, but there's nowhere that this should be making sense because they're reading it as accountants, essentially, um, with the idea to discredit you, to mm. see that if, if you're lying, that we're lying about our disabilities or making up our disabilities, we're, we're having to say that we're you know, uh, how disabled we have, we are. And it's, it's, it's something that to me just, it doesn't make sense. Right. Um, there's so many barriers. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a process that most people will give up on at some point through the, through all the challenges. I, I know this might be a, a million dollar consulting idea and maybe you don't want to give it all the way, uh, give it all the way here on the air, but what does a more streamlined process look like that might alleviate some of those uh, tax agent concerns, but also maybe shift the burden or uh, an undue burden away from the person with a disability from the, from the applicant? So... I think if we if you step back a little bit, um, in the case of an acquired disability, um, we need to look at this from from a proactive sense because once most of the time, a lot of the costs that are coming to the government in terms of healthcare, um, in terms of the economical value of people losing work, missing work because they're seeking a diagnosis because they are in the in the in the process of either uh, acquiring an illness or a disability. Um, all of that, there's a lot of trips to the hospital usually that occur before somebody gets diagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a lot of time, a lot of personal costs and a lot of just economic costs in terms of the loss that we have uh, when people are not able to work because they're in that process of seeking a diagnosis. Um, and so if we were to funnel that money uh, into a proactive system, 
um, that would then support somebody's quality of life in a, in a, a quicker way. And then in the case of people who are born with a disability, I think it's even simpler because you're, you're, you're doing proactive support on somebody. So that is going to prevent further uh, societal issues and strains. So if we streamline it where I don't, I don't know exactly, but maybe a medical professional would be able to send that diagnosis directly to the CRA upon diagnosis, and then it's in the file, immediately initiate funding. And there's, there shouldn't be a reason for people to be, for, for the CRA to come back at people and say, hey, are you, are you really sure you had cancer? Um, are you really sure that you, um, you know, you, you, you've had an organ transplant? Uh, could you go back to the doctor and, and have us reprove that? I, I like the I, I like that idea that you're putting forward because whether that's whether it's the bureaucratic level inside the hospital. I mean, I, I don't know the last time you went to the hospital, but the last time I went, uh, there was a lot of bureaucracy that had to be done. There was a lot of paperwork, and there were a lot of bureaucratic points of contact that I made. So it definitely makes sense there could be a bureaucratic process there. I also wonder about the possibility of the CRA having their own specialists in house to make it a little bit easier to make direct appointments, and those could be digital appointments or over-the-phone appointments with a specialist to talk about this, right? Like, who, who specializes in the DTC application? So it might be a little bit more of a collaborative effort rather than having to run through 45 pieces of paperwork just to just to be rejected down the road. Yeah, I, I would love to see something like that. We, we do have nonprofit organizations that kind of facilitate, uh, but that's still not direct with the government. Um, yeah. If they had some case where, yes, we could do a video call and you could show your diagnosis or um, I'm not sure what, but to maybe humanize it a bit. I like that idea, uh, but not make, not make it lengthy, not make it more complicated, um, but also not look at it with the lens of people who are just trying to scam out money, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and understand that people who are disabled really are disabled mm -hmm. and, and people don't fake being um People don't usually fake being um, ill. They they fake being well most mm. of the time. Kelly, we, we took a detour there. It was an important detour because it was all from that lens of eligibility in regards to the National Disability Benefit. And like I said, it can get a little bit murky. But going beyond sort of this, this base point, which even the base point you didn't like, the disability tax credit or provincial supports, what about the idea of expanding it for people beyond that? Understanding that living in poverty with a disability might still be the case even if you have a job. I I wonder about some kind of sliding scale that says you're going to continue to receive some or all of the benefit, even as you make uh, up to a certain income, maybe $50,000 a year. Again, I'm throwing ballpark numbers out here, but but maybe getting back at this, uh, this problem that's been identified a couple of times of government clawbacks of benefits when sort of a single dollar of income makes its way into the life of a person with a disability. Yes, I mean, that's a huge issue where, where people can't have savings, they can't have a certain amount of savings in their account. Um, when you, you were mentioning like just reaching, let's say 50, 50K a year. And and so I, I just wouldn't want it to be capped. That's my only, my only issue. I, I'd rather see a minimum quality of life rather than a cap because non-disabled people don't have their income capped. So let's try and keep something that is, that allows for that potential um, and that we we know also that many people are already living below the the poverty line, right? And and that to me is unacceptable. So 
let's not penalize people for working um, and let's put more value on their humanity and the value of the of the person and just their right to live and have their basic needs met. Um, and some people with their disability and even with all the supports may not be able to work. So I don't really want to put the focus on on that and how much they can work or how much income they can possibly make. Um, I just feel that everybody has should have that right to comfort and a life of ease um, regardless and have that basic minimum met. Well, I'm not going to fight with you about this morning. That that this morning, that's a, that's a statement that uh, it's hard for me to disagree with. Kelly, thank you for this. Thank you so much. And um, I have a lot to say. I haven't filled out my my um, my uh, feedback form yet, but uh, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can tell. I can tell. There's going to be uh, there's going to be a thought or two in that one. That's Kelly Braun Johnson, founder of Completely Inclusive. If you want to share your thoughts about the benefit with the federal government, I'm going to give you that phone number again: one eight three three. 390-4065. That's 1-833-390-4065. There's also the opportunity to chime in online via email or via regular old snail mail. But for the sake of simplicity, because the link is pretty darn long <laughs> on some of those points of contact, the phone number, one 390-4065. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe will have the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter John Kennedy with your Morning Business Minutes. Canadian investors are hoping to see a positive push upward after stocks closed out Friday with mixed results, while U.S. markets were closed for the Thanksgiving long weekend most of last week. On Friday, the S&P slash TSX Composite Index closed down 13 points to 20,103. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had closed up 117 points to 35,390. The S&P 500 Index was up 2 points to 4,559, while the Nasdaq Composite was down 15 points at 14,250. The Canadian dollar is trading at 73.36 cents U.S. compared to 73.41 cents on Friday. The January crude oil contract was down $1.56 from Wednesday's close at $75.54 per barrel. The December gold contract was up $10.20 to $2,003 an ounce. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm John Kennedy. Thank you very much, John. Let's turn to the world of weather with Alex Smythe. Alex, a bit of uh, winter weather in the GTA. Yeah, you know, we're starting off this uh, week by exploring a multi-day uh, snow system heading for uh, much of southern Ontario, Dave. So uh, you can expect even starting today, there's going to be conditions like whiteout conditions for the Muskoka region, basically anywhere uh, west or east, I should say, of Georgian Bay and Lake Huron. They can expect some, some snowy, windy, blistery uh, conditions with that. There's also going to be a significant impact on commuters and, and drivers are to take extreme caution or even change their plans because of these whiteout conditions from snow squalls in the area. Now, this system is going to linger because it's actually a polar vortex that's currently situated over the Great Lakes, especially around Lake Huron and Georgian Bay. So what that means is we're going to see parts of southern Ontario, so from the London area, anywhere in between Lake Huron and Lake Ontario, you could see upwards of 20 centimeters of snow by the time 
the system is done by Wednesday. That even means the GTA, Dave. So Tuesday, we may be seeing some, some snow in our neck of the woods. So the, the Golden Horseshoe right around Lake Ontario, we could see some dusting of snow, not as bad as the kind of the middle of the province, but still enough that we're gonna experience our first taste of winter. On the positive side though, come Thursday, Friday, the conditions lighten up, the weather goes back into above normal temperatures, so that snow is not gonna be too long lasting, at least in our neck of the woods. Thank you very much, Alex. That's Alex Smythe with a look at what's going on in the world of weather. Coming up after the break, the Netflix biopic, Nyad, tells the story of a swimmer attempting to get from Cuba to Florida. Amy Amanti will stop by with a review. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.